0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Narratives mean a lot in presidential politics. Take 2011. Former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney began the Republican primary as the clear frontrunner. runner. He had the backing of much of the GOP establishment, with fundraising numbers to prove it. But he was loathed by hardcore conservatives and Tea Party activists. So long before anyone voted, the narrative of the 2012 GOP campaign was, who would be the anti-Romney candidate? Enter the Godfather. Now back to tonight's Republican debate. Five prospective candidates will try to break into the top tier with a strong performance tonight. When Fox News hosted a presidential debate on May 5th, 2011, much of the talk was, would any of these candidates challenge Romney? On the stage that night was the GOP's JV squad. The heavy hitters, including Romney, skipped it. Former Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty was there, as well as Libertarian Congressman Ron Paul, former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson, former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum, and a little-known businessman named Herman Cain.
0: But the big surprise of the night was businessman Herman Kane. Most people have never heard of him. He really proved to be a fan favorite.
1: Kane was unique in a lot of ways. He was a rare African-American in the Republican Party. He'd never held public office before. More than anything, he had a big and feisty personality, unlike most of the GOP field.
2: Most of the people that are in elective office in Washington, D.C., they have held public office before. How's that working for you? We have a mess. How about sending a problem solver to the White House?
3: The problem solver was the overwhelming winner that night. And so who won tonight's debate? For that answer, we now check in with our very own
1: Frank Luntz. According to the Republican pollster Frank Luntz, Kane started the night with just one supporter in his focus group. Who won the debate? Let's go in alphabetical order. How many of you think Herman Kane won
0: the debate? Well, we can stop right there.
1: One by one, the hands shot up. By the end of the debate, more than half of Luntz's all-white panel rated Kane as their first choice. That just doesn't happen in politics. John, I want a word or phrase to describe Herman Cain.
3: The answer the question most direct. A breath of fresh air.
4: Common sense. He did so well at the debate. Mr. Cain pretty much went off the charts.
1: That was Linda Hansen. She was Cain's deputy campaign manager and was responsible, along with Mark Block, the head of the campaign, for figuring out how to translate Cain's debate success into something more. Now, at this point, Kane wasn't even a declared candidate, but he was vaulting up national polls and all of a sudden gaining attention.
4: We knew at that point that uh, the time was now to announce.
1: Two weeks later, Kane officially announced his candidacy in front of 15,000 cheering supporters. As well, only Herman Kane could.
2: Mom, mom, mom. Love you. Oh. Yucky-ducky, as the man would say.
1: While national media dismissed him as merely an entertaining sideshow, Republican activists and voters did not. He struck a nerve in a party craving for somebody to tell it like it is. Almost overnight, he sees the narrative of the outsider businessman who is going to challenge Romney. Herman Cain, the frontrunner, was also a big, bright, glaring sign or maybe a window into the soul of the modern Republican Party how much it had dramatically changed.
4: It was a long shot, but we knew that there was a possibility that he could become the leader of the free world.
1: History may be written by the winners. But in American presidential politics, history is often shaped by the long shots.
3: God bless you, and God bless America.
1: These are the stories of the campaigns of presidential primary losers, the candidates who didn't make it onto the final ballot, but still changed how we see America.
2: No generation can choose the age or circumstance in which it is born. But through leadership, it can choose to make the age in which it is born an age of enlightenment. An age of jobs and peace and justice. These
1: are the stories of America's presidential primary battles, the contest for the most powerful office in the world. I'm Connor Powell, and I'll be your host. For the last decade, I've covered some of the world's most violent conflicts and turbulent international elections as a foreign correspondent. Now I'm back in the U.S., digging into the fascinating tales of campaigns that bring a kaleidoscope of color to our black and white history. You're listening to Long Shots. Today, Herman Cain, the godfather. Herman Cain is anything but ordinary. However, his life story is very much an all-American one. Born in Memphis, Tennessee, Cain grew up in a poor working-class family. He made his mark as a businessman, a turnaround specialist, really. First at Coca-Cola, then Pillsbury, Burger King, before turning around the struggling pizza chain, Godfathers. He burst onto the national stage in 1994 as a sort of spokesman for the business community when he argued with Bill Clinton over health care policy during a televised town hall meeting.
2: If I'm forced to do this, what will I tell those people whose jobs I will have to eliminate?
3: So you would add about 1.5% of to the total cost of doing business Would that really cause you to lay a lot of people off if all your competitors had to do it too? Okay, first of all, Mr.
2: President, with all due respect, your calculation on what the impact would do, uh, quite honestly, is incorrect.
1: Not long after his debate with President Bill Clinton, Cain left the business world for Washington, D.C., becoming the CEO of the National Restaurant Association. He soon became a sought-after speaker, working for the political advocacy group Americans for Prosperity, a conservative super PAC funded by the Koch brothers that basically created the Tea Party. By the time Cain became an insurgent candidate, he was well known to many hardcore, grassroots Republican activists, but few others. What really thrust them into the national spotlight in the summer of 2011 was his folksy, confident, preacher-like charisma and simple political message.
5: His messaging was just so focused on this idea that we live in a time where People have to walk on eggshells to, in order not to offend people.
1: That's Andrew Rafferty. He covered Kane in 2011 for NBC News.
5: You had Herman Cain come in, and his rallies were totally different. He was way more engaging. He was telling jokes. He was resonating with the crowd. He railed against kind of this PC culture.
1: Kane's arrival on the political scene coincided at a tipping point in the Republican Party. For three decades, a war raged inside the GOP between the country club establishment, think the Bushes, Bob Dole, John McCain, and Mitt Romney. And the angry anti-establishment grassroots, Pat Buchanan, Sarah Palin, and Joe the Plumber. Remember that guy from the early days of the Tea Party?
0: There's too many questions with Barack Obama and his uh, loyalty to our country, and I, I, I question that greatly.
1: In 2011, the establishment was close to losing control of the party, Grassroots were winning elections at every level. They just hadn't won a Republican nomination contest yet. And they were viscerally opposed to another politically correct, weak-kneed establishment figure. They wanted a fresh face.
4: We personally felt that, you know, the Republican Party at the time was a little out of touch with the grassroots people.
1: Michelle Bachman and Newt Gingrich were also vying for this anti-establishment role. But they were both longtime politicians and pretty conventional ones at that even if they said outrageous things on TV. So not really outsiders. Kane had the resume and the brashness
3: of an outsider, says former Fox News reporter Carl Cameron. He was charismatic, he was humorous, he said things that made no sense and that made for great late night political comedy. Uh, and he got attention. Kane's resume was his political ideology. He'd come from nothing and he made himself into a success
1: just as he turned around Godfather's Pizza, promised to turn around America. For the grassroots of the Republican Party, Kane radiated optimism and American values with the potential to shake things up in Washington.
0: When you listen to Herman Cain, no one, I mean, there is not one candidate in this field who can talk about America's greatness, you know, that shining city on the hill. He really connects with people who want to believe that America can get back on track, they think it's off track, and continue to be a better place for them and their children. He inspires people, he reaches people.
2: The American people are gonna raise some pain in 2012.
1: To say Herman Cain's presidential campaign was unconventional is an understatement. His campaign strategy
5: was unorthodox, to put it politely.
1: Traditionally, if you want to be president, you pretty much have to move to Iowa or New Hampshire, build up huge campaign staffs in early primary states, spend months eating corn dogs, and posing for photos pretending
5: Boilermakers are your everyday drink of choice. That's not what Herman Cain did. While people were campaigning in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina... I was going with Herman Cain to places like Tennessee and Alabama and Texas.
1: During the summer of 2011, Cain was rising in the polls. Still far from a contender, but buzz was building among social conservatives. In September, Cain shocked everyone, winning a Republican presidential straw poll in Florida, crushing his nearest competitors, Texas Governor Rick Perry, Mitt Romney, and Newt Gingrich.
5: That was kind of his real first... Big victory that kind of put him on the national platform. And then all of a sudden, a number of polls came out, national polls that showed him leading. Instead of rushing to Iowa or New Hampshire to
1: capitalize on his victory, Cain turned his attention to a national book tour for his newly released autobiography, This is Herman Cain. And just so you know, that's This is Herman Cain with an exclamation point.
5: They weren't doing the things that you see candidates who want to win the presidency and be taken seriously were doing. It was completely odd. And
3: if any candidate does not kiss the ring of Iowa, New Hampshire and South Carolina, they're really not a candidate in the sense of someone who's actually running for office and expects to win. Herman Cain was exactly that kind of a candidate who really wasn't. A day before his surprising victory,
1: Cain wasn't sending emails to voters to rally support. Instead, the campaign offered a
5: chance to buy a collector's edition of his book. There was one fundraiser where, you know, you could buy the book for $50 or you could get it for $100 if you wanted a signed copy.
1: Nathan the one of Cain's top aides, defended the book tour, insisting it's part of building up Kane's name ID.
0: Every candidate that runs writes a book, it helps to show where they stand on policy. It helps to, you to learn their backstory. It helps for you to learn all about them. And so we utilize that, uh, you know, that platform to to help share Mr. Kane's story and what brought him to this point.
1: Now, in all fairness, even as he led in many national polls, Kane was still a virtual unknown to many voters. And books are a great way to raise your profile. Still, pundits continue to question the campaign's approach. Steve Days, an Iowa-based conservative radio host and caucus kingmaker, crushed Kane on his radio show, asking, was he even running for president or just lining up a book tour?
4: Absolutely, and I'm smiling as I'm thinking about this because uh, people did criticize us for that.
1: Hansen told me their campaign strategy was all about building momentum in all of the primary states, not just the early voting ones. Short on cash compared to other campaigns, Kane's team was banking on word-of-mouth support and energy.
4: We were really building what I call the safety net states.
1: In 2011, just as today, political activists, like everyone else, communicated through social media. Hansen said even by holding rallies in places other than Iowa and New Hampshire, Kane's message would spread to those states by enthusiastic supporters.
4: Those people are on social media. They're talking to their friends and relatives in other states. The, you know, newspapers are writing about them. Everything, there's, there's a lot of organic earned media and earned grassroots enthusiasm that comes from that. So uh, it was actually part of our strategy to do that. This
1: strategy would never have worked in 1980 or even 2004. It's not a crazy strategy. It's actually visionary Think back to what Donald Trump did in 2015. He built momentum among grassroots conservatives by tweeting and going on TV. He even paid for actors to be at his launch to give the impression of huge support. Everything Trump did and said spread like wildfire, even though he rarely spent time in Iowa and New Hampshire in comparison to most candidates. Despite all of the criticism, Cain's strategy was working with Republican voters in the fall of 2011. Maybe the strategy was unorthodox or even faulty, but Herman Cain was surging. The long shot was now the frontrunner.
4: I hate your generation. We are in the midst of a generational war. Boomers just die. Xers, Karens, Millennials, Entitled Brats, Gen Z, Ungrateful TikTokers. I'm Carol Costello, a veteran journalist, and I have a new podcast series called I Hate Your Generation. It invites people in different generations to talk frankly, face to face, about everything from cancel culture to racial justice to socialism. Contentious, yes, but healing too. If you don't get your kit or that old guy, I Hate Your Generation is for you. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcast. It's available now.
1: In late October 2011, Herman Cain was on the cover of Newsweek with the headline, Yes, We Cane. Get it? Of course you do. The headline was a sign of just how far the once unknown former Godfather's pizza CEO had come. In a few short weeks, Herman Cain has gone from afterthought to a top Republican presidential contender. Republicans flocked to Kane for his humor, his unorthodox style, and cheery optimism. They stayed for his signature economic plan.
2: 999. 999 tax plan.
5: 999. Herman Cain's 999 tax plan. More than any other issue,
1: An aversion to taxes unites the modern Republican Party. No conservative politician launches a campaign without announcing at least a few tax cut plans. In 2011, Herman Cain, the businessman, one-upped all the professional politicians, identifying the one thing nearly every Republican voter hates more than taxes, the U.S. tax code.
0: Think about how popular it is for people inside the Republican primary electorate, to Americans more broadly, too, when somebody says, let's toss out the entire tax code. Let's toss out the entire system. It's too complicated. Here's a simple plan. Cain wasn't
1: the first to offer a flat tax. Steve Forbes, among others, tried it in the
2: past. But Kane delivered, packaged, and marketed it like no other. You broaden the tax base and together you lower the net net taxes for everybody.
1: 999 was simplistic and catchy. It rolls off the tongue. Even now, it's fun to say 999. I bet some of you are even saying it along with me. Continuing
2: to pivot off the current tax code is not going to boost this economy. This is why we developed 999. 9% corporate business flat tax, 9% personal income flat tax, and a 9% national sales tax. It doesn't
1: matter that Keynes' tax plan was criticized as bad policy by Democrats and Republicans liberals, and conservatives. Its success confirms a truth about voters. They love catchy solutions to complicated problems, like build that wall or lock her up. It made many voters feel like something they hated could easily be fixed. In our modern political environment, where social media messages are shared and reshared, that is powerful and cheaper than a TV ad. And therein lies the brilliance of Herman Cain's brief candidacy when he was on message, he was a dynamic and persuasive politician.
2: Message is more powerful than money, and the American people like the message.
1: Kane was really unmatched on the Republican side until Donald Trump came along with his build-the-wall mantra. But Kane didn't always stay on message. What Herman Cain thought, Herman Kane said. As he rose in the polls and faced greater scrutiny, Kane became something of a gaffe machine. Like other politicians, Kane favored a barrier between the U.S. and Mexico, but Cain advocated for something a little bit more than a fence to stem immigration.
2: And on this side of the fence, I'd have that boat that President Obama talked about, and I would put those alligators in that boat.
5: <laughs> he would get blowback for that. He was joking, but the reality is the people who were at the rallies, it resonated with them. They didn't necessarily view it as a joke.
1: Cain also had to walk back comments that he would be uncomfortable with a Muslim in his cabinet and that cities should be able to ban mosques if they wanted to. When it came to foreign policy, not a particular strength of Cain's, he was almost proud of his ignorance. I'm ready for the gotcha questions.
2: And when they ask me who's the president of you, Becky, 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 Stan, Stan, I'm going to say, you know, I don't know. Do you know? Knowing who is the head of some of these small, insignificant states around the world, I don't think that is something that's critical to focusing on national security and getting this economy going.
1: At times, it seemed Kane was just trolling critics who wanted him to be more serious.
2: Who knows every detail of every country or every situation on the planet? Nobody. We need
1: a leader, not a reader. As Chris Eliza, then of The Washington Post and MSNBC pointed out, Kane here seems to be quoting a scene from The Simpsons where President Schwarzenegger, was being briefed by staff, and hastily made a decision without contemplating the
3: ramifications. Have a listen. I've narrowed your choices down to five unthinkable options. Each will cause untold misery. i picked number three. You don't even want to read them first? I was elected to lead, not to read. Part of Herman
1: Cain's attraction as a candidate was his unorthodox style and sense of humor. He really could be funny. Unlike other Republicans, Mitt Romney and Tim
0: Pawlenty... Cain seemed to enjoy campaigning. Nathan Adue said, At the end of the day, nobody was having more fun than Mr. Kane was though we were out on the road. Kane
1: made a point to say America needed to lighten up a bit.
2: I would bring a sense of humor to the White House because America is too uptight.
1: Kane also used humor to dodge criticism and deflect from his inexperience, which, as the campaign wore on, began to show. The campaign was also just different. Maybe it was the lack of money. Or maybe it was just a reflection of the uniqueness of the candidate. Mark Block here. The Smoking Man ad where campaign manager Mark Block is literally just standing by a wall smoking while talking to Kane supporters is unorthodox, strange, and also really effective. In a sea of forgettable political ads, we all remember this one. We need you to get involved because together we can do this. We can take this country back.
4: Well, it wasn't ever meant to be a commercial. It wasn't even a commercial. It was meant to be just a greeting to the supporters, you know, as you put it in your email messages to the people who are your supporters, right?
1: Kane's staff was in Las Vegas following a debate when the campaign's videographer, Chris Briard, asked Linda Hansen where Mark Block was.
4: So I said, well, I think he's outside smoking, which is where he often was. And uh, so Chris went out to videotape him and it was totally spontaneous, totally unscripted. At the end, Mark took a drag on his cigarette. And and then it's actually kind of cute because they came in um, afterwards. And for those listeners who don't know, prior to my political work, I was actually a homeschool mom. And, uh, but they came in and laughed and said, Hanson, which was my term of endearment. "Um, Hanson, we need a homeschool mom's opinion. We have the cigarette in here and we need to know what to do with it. So I watched that video three, four times. And I said, I hate smoking and I don't like cigarettes, but you need to leave that cigarette in there because it exemplifies who we are. And it, kind of signified, get government out of the way, which is what we were trying to do with the campaign.
1: Whether intentional or not, Kane's team discovered in the era of social media, to connect with the YouTube generation, you have to produce unique content. The smoking Man ad was ridiculed by the media and political operatives who only knew one way to run for office. Late night shows had a field day with it. Wow. I don't know what it is, but something about that guy just seems cool. Despite the mocking, it was played and replayed and talked about for days everywhere. It broke through all the political noise, which is what you want out of a political commercial. But to some, it was just another sign that the campaign and Herman Cain were in over their heads.
3: A lot of these gaffes were really adding up. And that lack of discipline was very entertaining, but it was also an obvious sign that this guy is not serious because you don't say the kind of nonsense that he often came up with if you're actually thinking about trying to run an election and win. Despite the
1: growing list of gaffes, Cain was still well-positioned heading into November, leading to most polls and with the Iowa caucuses just a few weeks away. Then as quickly as he emerged from nowhere it all came crumbling down.
4: The struggle to make a family can be so painful, sometimes you just have to laugh about it. That's why I created IVFU, a podcast about the pain, joy, angst, and love of trying to make a family the new-fashioned way. Join me for uninhibited, honest conversations with patients, doctors, egg donors, adoptive parents, and more. I'm your host, Sam Shaber, singer-songwriter, storyteller, and infertile mama. Find us at IVFUPodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you stream your pods, because it's all about being a family.
1: On October 30th, just as he reached frontrunner status, Herman Kane's past collided with his future.
4: As he kept rising in the polls, we knew eventually the attack would come. Politico
1: reported that day at least two female employees from the National Restaurant Association accused Kane of inappropriate behavior while he was the head of the trade group in the mid-1990s.
5: Herman Cain lands in Washington, D.C., the political media capital of the world, and all of a sudden this explosive article comes out, and there's literally no place worse that he could be in the country than Washington. Rumors of the allegations had been circling for days. Some of the people who were covering the campaign back in D.C. had heard some of that stuff. Carl Cameron had heard all the rumors and approached Kane about them a few days
3: before in Las Vegas. He flatly denied it and said it's all untrue and it's all a bunch of lies and it's propaganda from people and the forces that are against his candidacy.
1: Once the news broke, the campaign was in full damage control. Mark Block appeared on MSNBC while Kane went to friendlier territory, Fox News, to deny the allegations,
2: calling the story a witch hunt. I've never sexually harassed anyone. Yes, I was Falsely accused while I was at the National Restaurant Association. And I say falsely because it turned out after the investigation to be baseless.
1: But the denials didn't put the story to bed. Other accusers came forward. And it turned out the National Restaurant Association actually reached financial settlements with two women. Contrary to what the Kane campaign initially said and not a particularly convenient fact when you're trying to prove your innocence. Then after Thanksgiving, a fifth woman, Ginger White, claimed she and Kane had only just recently ended a 13-year extramarital affair. Kane denied the affair, but acknowledged their friendship and giving White financial support. Supporters called all of the allegations a high-tech lynching, parodying Clarence Thomas's defense from a Supreme Court confirmation hearing 20 years ago.
4: We had been told even during our exploratory committee time that Really, the only way that they'd ever be able to take him out is to quote Clarence Thomas him and make false accusations that could create doubt.
1: Inside the campaign, Kane tried to reassure staff.
4: He just basically said, we can't let it become a distraction. We have to keep focus.
0: Mr. Kane said, look, this is all baloney and we're going to fight it and we're just going to keep moving forward and we're just going to keep spreading the message.
1: To this day, his close-knit group of advisors insists the type of accusations leveled against Herman Cain were completely out of
0: character. I never once heard anything that could even be misconstrued as inappropriate.
1: Everyone I spoke to from the campaign was reluctant to point fingers at who leaked the information.
0: From a lot of evidence that we saw and some things that we heard about, I would not be surprised if it was previous consultants or D.C. folks that had worked with him that had the research that wanted to put it out.
1: But in 2011, campaign officials pointed the finger squarely at Rick Perry. The Texas governor has a long history of playing dirty, and several former Kane aides were working for Perry at the time the story broke. Two weeks after the allegations came out, the media storm had barely receded when Kane stumbled again badly watching a fairly easy question about America's military intervention in Libya in an interview with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel.
0: So you agreed with President Obama
2: on Libya or not? Okay, Libya. President Obama supported the uprising, correct? I do not agree with the way he handled it for the following reason. Um, No, that's, that's a different one. Um, I got to go back. And see,
5: uh, got all this stuff twirling around in my head. Um, it is uh, the ultimate, one of the ultimate brain freezes of politics.
1: The interview raised questions about his fitness to be commander in chief and spread via social media instantly. Andrew Rafferty was traveling with the King campaign in Wisconsin when his phone started to blow up. I get
5: a call from some of my colleagues who are who are back at the bureau telling me about this video that the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel had just posted and that we need to get reaction immediately as soon as you see Herman Cain. So I just kind of hang out outside this door. And uh, and he, sure enough, he comes out and I ask him something along the lines of, do you think your Libya answer today underscores the idea that you don't have a thorough understanding of foreign policy? And he just stops and he looks right at my camera and points and just goes, nine, nine Nine and walks away it was just so emblematic of the campaign that you know no matter what the question was the answer was always going to be 999 that was who he was he was going to talk about what he wanted to talk about
1: The accusations of misconduct and unforced political gaffes were starting to take a toll on Herman Cain's presidential prospects and his family, particularly his wife, Gloria. The once-unknown businessman plummeted in several polls, and even more worrisome, the number of Republicans who viewed him negatively skyrocketed. Only the most diehard of supporters stuck with him, as donations slowed to a drip.
4: The grassroots did not drive. I think that they would have been there regardless. They were amazing.
1: King remained a strong voice for conservative economic ideas. He just couldn't get through an event without being asked about the accusations.
3: In the bright light of political scrutiny, he got burned pretty hard because he was investigated as everybody else was and had some things in his past.
1: He was simply running out of time to reestablish his credibility.
4: He took a hard look at this and felt that We were damaged enough that we more than likely would not get the nomination.
1: Five weeks before the Iowa caucuses, an unapologetic Herman Cain suspended his campaign, citing the toll it had taken on his family and the continued distractions.
2: The pundits would like for me to shut up, drop out, and go away. I am not going to be silenced and I'm not going away.
0: I was, of course, really upset and didn't want it to end.
4: We started that campaign with, I often say, you know, two crazy people and a candidate that nobody knew and basically no money. And uh, we told him we can take you to number one. And we did, but uh, we peaked a little early.
1: Some campaigns just fold up shop when the campaign is over and the candidate goes back to doing whatever they were doing before the campaign. Without any care for the staff and vendors who were owed money. Kane's small campaign team was very much a family affair. To his credit, Kane paid off all of his debts the staff, vendors, and all the other people who make a campaign happen.
4: Mr. Kane made a decision to back out so that there would be enough money to pay all the bills and to make sure that the staff could be paid through Christmas so they would not have to worry how they were going to handle Christmas with their families.
1: This may seem trivial, but a lot of campaigns just end. And a lot of people are left hanging, hoping the debts are at some point repaid. Cain didn't do that, but his campaign was over nonetheless. We will never know if Herman Cain could have actually won the GOP nomination in 2012, let alone the presidency his messy personal life made sure of that. But in hindsight, he did tell us a lot about a significant chunk of the Republican Party and its desire for not only an unorthodox candidate, but also one who was
5: proudly outside the norm. Why he resonated for the time that he did is he was totally different than most of the other people running in the 2012 primaries. And he promised to basically drop bombs and blow the system up,
1: Cain was a harbinger of things to come, a canary in the coal mine. Some have even described him as the John the Baptist for Donald Trump, who, let's face it, had an even
3: messier personal life.
4: I often say if we would have had Donald Trump's money and Twitter, I think Mr. Kane would have been president. But it wasn't our time.
3: There are real similarities. They're both hucksters. They're both showmen, kind of carnival barker types. And they are not at all afraid to exaggerate and tell falsehoods if
5: it suits the moment. It just showcases a huge appetite among at least the Republican electorate, primary electorate, for a voice of somebody who's going to kind of come in and just drop a bomb, blow everything up.
1: Herman Cain was a political neophyte. He should never have come close to being the Republican nominee. In hindsight, he was way closer than many think. If he had stayed in the race without the distractions, or even with them, he might have won the nomination. I mean, Donald Trump faced similar accusations four years later and just bulldozed his way through. That is really the lesson from Herman Cain's presidential campaign. Donald Trump's nomination and election shouldn't have come as a surprise because Herman Cain struck that exact nerve four years earlier.
4: I knew we were doing something that was changing the course of history. I knew that we were hitting a nerve across this country and we were speaking to the needs of people in a way that other candidates were not doing.
1: You've been listening to Long Shots. Thank you to our guests, Mark Block, Carl Cameron, Andrew Rafferty, Linda Hansen, and Nathan Nadu. Long Shots was created by me, Connor Powell, and produced by Gary Scott of Inside Voices. Our sound editor was JC Swadek. Sound design was done by Logan Heftel. Thanks to Jake Bluenote for the Long Shots theme song, aptly called, Blinger. And thank you to our social media strategist, Madeline Rosin. Thanks to Starburns Audio for the use of their studios. And a special thanks to the team at Keramis who built our website at longshotspodcast.com. Keramis is a leader in creative, strategy and software development. Whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a newly formed startup, the team at Keramis will get your concept to the market quickly. If you like today's episode, you are in luck. There's more stories just like this bat crazy one. Please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening. Leave us a review on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the Good Pods app. And recommend us to a friend. Until next time, I'm Connor Powell, and this is My Life.